Glad y'all are with us this morning. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 21. A few announcements. One, I was told that my shirt is, quote, dancing, which may be the only part of me that ever dances, but I apologize. I hope I don't give you a headache. I thought I was okay because it was stripes. Apparently not. Still working on that. Uh, two other things. One, Bo and the worship team just released uh, their album, uh, Draw Us In. They've been working on it for a couple of years. Uh, you can find it on Spotify, uh, Apple Music. It's, you need to search Stonebridge Worship. Don't search Bo Bryan. It's under Stonebridge Worship. Many of the songs you're already familiar with. We've been singing them uh, for several years. Go listen to that. Stream it. Tell your friends about it. Great worship album. A second announcement starting next week. We're going to try to do some in-person worship. So uh, 9 and 11 here uh, in this room, uh, family services uh, just for one hour. Uh, we'll send out an email this week with all the details. Uh, really what we're looking for, uh, we think we have space for maybe 160 people. So that's about, uh, depending on how it breaks down according to families. We're, again, we're going to do two services, 9 and 11. Uh, what we're going to ask is for the next two weeks, June 21st and 28th, that you pick just one of those weeks to sign up for. We don't have any idea how many people want to come or will be able to come. And so initially, we want you to just sign up for either the 21st or the 28th. And then if it turns out that they don't fill up, then we'll let people sign up for both. But again, there'll be an email coming with all of that information. Of course, if you're in a vulnerable category for, um, uh, for COVID, we don't want you to come. We want you to stay home. We're going to continue to live stream everything uh, we only want people to come who feel like, who feel comfortable being here. There's a risk anytime you gather uh, in a group, and we can't mitigate all of that, that risk. We're going to do our best uh, to keep everybody healthy, but we can't, again, we can't guarantee that. So um, we're going to continue to do online worship as well. And one other thing, just if you come, we want you to know that during worship, when we're singing, you're going to have to wear a mask. Not during the rest of the time. The rest of the time, the mask is optional. But during worship, we're all going to wear masks except for the worship team. Singing is one of the things that spreads the virus uh, farther and more rapidly, and so we want to do our part to try to tamp that down. So anyway, all that information will be coming this week in an email. Uh, if that email is confusing, you can reach out to Kim, and she'll help you navigate uh, what would be best. So again, uh, live worship or in-person worship beginning next week, June 21st, 9 and 11. You have to register we will be wearing masks during worship. If you're in a vulnerable category, we want to strongly encourage you to continue to worship with us online. Okay, Revelation 21. So the slate's been wiped clean. Satan, beast, uh, false prophet, death, Hades, all been thrown in the lake of fire. They're all taken care of. Everyone who rejected Jesus also been thrown in the lake of fire. The only people that are left are God and his people. Uh, and we see in, in Revelation 21, 1 through 22, 5, it's, it's a, a description, a picture of life forever with God. What's it going to be like for God and his people? They're the only ones left. And we said there are three major elements. We've got the new heavens and the new earth. That's a parallel to Genesis 1 when God created the original heavens and earth. And as a part of that, there's also a new order. No more mourning or crying or pain or tears. We talked about that last week. All of the effects of the curse have been eradicated, and we can't fathom what that's like because sin and its consequences have so uh, infected creation and every aspect of life. We can't fathom what life is like without any of those impacts of the fall. 
and of the curse. But that's what we, that's what we'll uh, that's what this new heaven and new earth will 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 experience. We're going to have these new bodies again. We don't really know what those are. Uh, maybe similar to Jesus' resurrection body. It was still physical. You could touch him. The disciples could recognize him. He could eat, but he could also walk through walls. So we'll see how that works for us. But this new body will be perfectly suited to this new environment, this new heavens and this new earth and this new order where there is no curse. And we also said that there's a new city, and that's what we're going to talk about today, and then a new dynamic, a new relationship between God and his people And we'll talk about that next week. So we're going to read from chapter 21, verse 9, through chapter 22, 5. And this will be our passage for the next two weeks. So this week I'm only going to focus on the the new city portion of this passage. And next week we'll talk about this new dynamic between God and his people. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were written the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be twelve thousand stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurements, and it was one hundred and forty-four cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city wall were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their forehead. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So we're going to, again, just focus on this idea of the holy city. It can be a little confusing because the city is described as both a location, the new Jerusalem, and as a person, the bride uh, bride of the Lamb or the bride of Christ. That, again, can be a little bit confusing It's a deliberate contrast to Babylon, 
who in Revelation is also described as a city, the great city, and as a woman, the great prostitute. And so now we have this holy city. It's a location, the New Jerusalem, and a person, the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. We'll look at the place first. Don't want to get too wrapped up in the physical description. Uh, We have this huge city. Theologians call it a garden city. It has elements of a garden and of a city. I see it as parallel to Genesis 2. If the new heavens and the new earth are parallel to Genesis 1, I see this new Jerusalem as a place, as a parallel to Genesis 2, the Garden of Eden. So we have God creating the heavens and the earth, and then in the midst of the heavens and the uh, the earth, he creates this special place for Adam and Eve, where they're going to live, where they're going to work, where they're going to rest, where they're going to relate to God and to one another. That's the Garden of Eden. The new Jerusalem to me is similar. We saw last week God created the new heavens and the new earth. There's this new order, this new way of being. And then in the midst of all of that, he creates this special place, the new Jerusalem. And that's where we'll live and work and rest and relate to him and to one another. It's it's a special place within this new heavens and this new earth that God has created for us. And it's, it's huge. It's this huge city. It's set up like a cube. We'll talk next week about the significance of that shape. But it's massive, 1,400 square miles. Or, excuse me, it's 1,400 miles in each direction. It's, a, it's almost 2 million square miles. It's about, it's about uh, two-thirds of the continental United States. That's how big this place is. And it's just a vision, remember. Don't take it literally. Don't pull out your tape measure. 12, one of those symbolic numbers, 12,000. That's 12 times 10 cubed. 10 is another one of those symbolic numbers. It's meant to speak about how large this city is. And if you think that there's only going to be a few people who are in kind of what we would say in heaven, it's not true. We see it's a, it's a vast multitude, Revelation says. It's too many for us to count. It's a massive city in which the people of God live. It has this wall that's 200 feet thick, if you can imagine that. For, for uh, John's first audience, any city that you would feel comfortable living in would have a wall around it. That was for protection. We're not going to need protection in, the new, in this new Jerusalem, but it, does, it speaks to the security that we'll have as God's people. Uh, and the rest of that description, I would say, really speaks more to the city as a people than the city as a place, and we'll get to that in a second. What I want to focus on, th- speaking about the place, is the activity of the city. Some of it is not surprising to us. It's not surprising that the only people who can enter the city are people whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's not surprising that people who do what's shameful or disgraceful are not allowed to enter the city. But what is surprising to me is there's this, uh, the end of chapter 21, a couple of phrases. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into the city. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into the city. That's maybe a bit surprising. Again, though, if you think about uh, this new Jerusalem being a parallel to the Garden of Eden, one of the dynamics in the Garden of Eden was work. Before the fall, God gave Adam and Eve an assignment. He put them in the garden and he said, work the ground and take care of it. When we think of work, a lot of times we think of toil and frustration and trouble. And those things are true, but they're true because of the curse. It was in Genesis 3, after sin entered the world, that God cursed the curse the ground. That's when there's thorns and thistles and toil and frustration and the sweat of your brow. All of that is a result of the curse. Originally, work was good. It was part of God's original intention for Adam and Eve and for their children to work, to, do, to, to be productive in this garden where he planted them. 
And if the New Jerusalem is in some ways a, a tie back to the Garden of Eden, then I would say maybe work will be a part of that as well. Maybe there'll be, I don't know exactly what that looks like for us, but maybe the splendor of kings and the glory and honor of nations, that's the work of a city. If taking care of ground and working soil is the work of a garden, then maybe splendor and honor and glory, maybe that's something around the work of a city. Theologians call it culture making, taking the raw materials that God has given us and doing something with them, improving them in some way, if you can kind of hear that word. It's not that we're necessarily making them better, but we're using them to make something more than just the raw materials that we've been given. And I think that's going to be a part of our forever. I think we'll continue to work. Don't think about your job. Nobody's getting a paycheck in heaven. There's no employer. There's no employee. If there's no sickness, then we don't need doctors and nurses. If there's no sin, then we don't need lawyers and judges and police. So don't think in terms of your profession. Think about the things that uh, kind of bring you life, the things that bring you joy, the things that when you're doing them, you think, I was created for this, or I was made to do this. I think that's the kind of thing that we'll be doing. We absolutely can worship God with our voice. We will praise him. We will sing in this new Jerusalem. But we also worship God when we use the gifts that he's given us to his glory. When we use the talents and the strengths, the abilities, when we do something with the material that he's given us. And I think, that, I think we'll be doing that. Again, it won't be frustrating. It won't be toilsome. It'll be joyful and it'll be rich. Again, it's hard for us to imagine because so much of our work is marred by the curse. But I do think that'll be a part of what it looks like for us. This, again, this is a garden city. There's a tree of life there. There's this river of life that's there. Those things speak back to Genesis 2 and Ezekiel 47. We'll talk a little bit more about those next week. But it's also a city. And if you think about, in a sense, the progress from maybe an agrarian to an industrial society, from a garden to a city, that process of making culture, I think we'll be continuing to do that forever in this new Jerusalem. Again, we're not chubby angels playing harps all days, and I don't think all of our time is spent in a, in a worship service. Absolutely, we'll praise God with our voice. We will. And I think we'll also praise him with our hands, with the work that we create. Bride of Christ, uh, the wife of the Lamb. So uh, the picture there, this bride is, is described really as a city, which is not how we tend to describe people for sure. And again, not to get lost in the details. It's a vision. It's true, but it's not literal. The materials, they're all these high-end, precious Stones are exotic and they're extravagant. I think that speaks really to the character of this woman. And this woman represents the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. The gates, we've got written on the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And written on the foundations are the names of the 12 apostles, Old Testament and New Testament people of God. And I think so it's not just the people of God uh, through all time. It's also the people of God from all over. There's 12 gates, three in the north, the south, the east, and the west. And so that speaks to us of people coming from everywhere. Remember Revelation 7. It's a great multitude that no one can count. The city's huge, and it's people from every tribe and nation and language and people group. People from all over. So this bride of Christ, this wife of the Lamb, 
is all of the people of God throughout all time and uh, throughout all of the world. Massive number of people, a countless multitude of people who make up the, what we would say is the church with the capital C, the people of God throughout all time. What I want you to see here is the third time, this is the third time in the New Testament where uh, the, the people of God are referred to as, as the bride of Christ, or it's one of the three major times. The other, uh, one's Ephesians 5 and one is Revelation 19 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So let me just read these to you. They'll be on the screen, I believe. This is a, uh, Revelation 19. I'm just going to read them both back to back. The wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So we see there's an emphasis on what she's wearing. Fine linen, bright and clean, given her to wear. Fine linen, the righteous acts of God's people. Ephesians 5, Paul's talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And then he uses uh, that as a, the relationship between Jesus and the church as an analogy. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her, that's cleansing the church, by the washing with water through the word, and to present her, that's the church, to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And what I see there in those three, three descriptions, Ephesians 5 is kind of talking about a wedding dress without wrinkle, without stain, without blemish. Revelation 19, again, wedding dress, fine linen, bright and clean. And then here in Revelation 21, it's this picture of a city with being built with uh, all of these precious stones and these precious jewels, and the gold is so pure, it's, as, it's clear, and you can see through it. To me, all of those things really speak to the character of the bride. They speak to the character of the people of God. Our, our destiny is holiness. And you may probably know that's not news to you. Our destiny, our future, is holiness. When we hear the word holiness, some of us, we kind of step back a little bit. We recoil because when we think of holiness, we think of legalism. We think of a long list of rules, 613 rules in the Old Testament. We start thinking of all of those, and it gets burdensome really quickly. And then maybe we think about this phrase, well, I'm free in Christ, and so those rules don't necessarily apply to me. And so then holiness in some level becomes optional for us. If you want to be holy, you can, but you don't have to be because you're free in Christ or God has already called you. He's declared that you're holy, so then your behavior doesn't matter. And it can be a kind of a confusing concept. So just two things I want you to grab onto this morning. Holiness is being set apart for and holiness is being set apart from. It's both of those elements. The set apart from is what we all think about. Those are the rules. We're set apart from sin. I don't just want you thinking about sinful behavior. That's low-hanging fruit. I want you thinking about motivation and desire. Again, think about the, the Sermon on the Mount. We mentioned this last week. The difference between the Pharisees' version of holiness, don't commit murder and don't commit adultery, and Jesus' version that says don't call someone a fool and don't look lustfully at another woman. He takes holiness and presses it in beyond just external behavior into the motivation and desires of our heart. We're separated from sin. But again, it's not just sinful behavior. Yes, that, but not just that. Move internal, move beyond that to motivations and to desires. The set-apart four is really important, and that's what a lot of us lose. We get focused on the rules, what I'm set apart from, 
And we never look at what we're set apart for. We're set apart for Jesus and him alone. Tomorrow is, my, uh, is our wedding anniversary. So for the last 23 years, I've been set apart from all the other guys in Mary Margaret's eyes. And she's been a, set apart from every other woman in my eyes. We're both set apart from the rest. That's part of what it means to be married. But can you imagine if over the last 23 years, the focus of our relationship or the way I related to her was all around boundaries? Hey, uh, how close can I get to this other girl without you being offended? How much of a relationship can I develop with her before it crosses the line for you? Imagine if that was the nature of our relationship. If everything was about how, how close we could get without crossing the line into adultery. That's the way many of us treat our relationship with Jesus. How close to sin can I get without actually crossing the line? How much can I get away with before I'm going to have to face a consequence? It's the classic youth group question when you're dating. How far is too far? It's the wrong question. Again, thinking of the the analogy of marriage, which is what Paul uses in Ephesians 5, any relationship, if I'm Again, Mary Margaret and I have been married for 23 years, and if the basis of our relationship was just our boundaries with other people, we probably wouldn't have made it 23 years. Because all we would be doing is looking at other people and how close we could get to them without sinning versus looking at one another and what it looks like to be one. Does that make sense? that's what we do with Jesus all the time. We look around and we want to know where are the lines that you've drawn for me and how close can I get to them and still be in the club? How close can I get to these boundaries and still be okay with you? We're looking around at sin or the world, if you like that better. We're not looking at Jesus. In a sense, we're kind of saying, how far away from you can I get and still be on the team? Again, imagine for those of you who are married, if that was your approach to your spouse, how far away from you can I get and us still be married? Those conversations, you got to have the conversations about boundaries. Absolutely. Those conversations need to be had. You need to know what the lines are and what everyone's comfortable with. But that can't be the foundation. That can't be the basis. That can't be the focus. You're always looking at other people. Think about those early days when you were dating. You didn't need to worry about boundaries because the only person you were thinking about was him or her. And that obviously that's, some of that's infatuation and that kind of fades over time. But you remember what that's like. And for those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a while, you maybe can remember those early days where you didn't, you didn't worry about sinning. You didn't even think about it because you were infatuated with him. And then over time, some of that begins to fade and then we start looking around and wondering how much we can kind of stretch our legs. How far can we get? We lose sight of this idea that holiness is not just to be set apart from, it's to be set apart for. Jesus has a double claim on your life through creation and through redemption. You're made through him and you're saved by his blood. He has a double claim upon each one of us. And so when he says, I've saved you for me, I want to present you as a bride to myself. There are other places where it says the Father presents us as a bride to Jesus. There's an exclusivity there that really, it it speaks to intimacy though. 
it is restrictive, but it's not restrictive um, in the sense of here's a bunch of rules that you have to follow. It's restrictive, again, in terms of this is an exclusive relationship that you get to be a part of. Again, marriage is a great parallel. It's a restrictive relationship, but it's restrictive in the sense of being exclusive. Within this bond, there's oneness, and you can't have that with more than one person. And the same is true in our relationship with Jesus. There's a level of intimacy with him, and we can't have that with anyone or anything else. When you read about the bride, it can be intimidating. I'm not that. I got stains. I've got wrinkles. I've got blemishes. I'm not made of these exotic and extravagant stones. My righteous acts look a whole lot like filthy rags and not much like fine linen that's bright and clean. God is conforming you and transforming you at the same time. There's things he's already said about you. He's already said you're holy. And now he says, act like it. Be holy as I'm holy. That's what he says. And and that's the work that he's doing in us. If you ever wonder, what is God doing in my life right now? The answer is always making you holy. To make you holy, that's a synonym for being conformed into the image of Jesus. Romans 8, 29, that's what we're predestined to be. God is always, all day, every day, working to make us as much like Jesus as possible. The theological word is sanctification. He's always working to make us holy. And that's not just saying, hey, here's the, here are the sins that you need to drop and move away from. Absolutely, some of that. But it's more, I think, an invitation deeper into that intimacy and exclusivity and oneness that we have in our relationship with Jesus. Let's form and shape you so you look more like him. Again, for those of you who are married, you can think about your relationship and the difference between focusing on your spouse versus focusing on others. Again, if all you're ever thinking about are boundaries, then you're always looking out. You're never looking at the one that you have. And at some point... That becomes misery, if not a recipe for disaster. And the same thing is true in our relationship with Jesus. If all we're ever doing is looking out, we're trying to find the lines and the boundaries. It's a recipe for disaster, if not at least misery for us. Where our Christian life just becomes a list of don'ts and some occasional do's. I think about Jesus, and he was called a a glutton and a drunkard. He was neither of those things. But he lived in a way that people were, could attach that label to him. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. If you think about the people who were drawn to Jesus, it was people who I may think, well, they would be repelled by him because he didn't do any of the things that they're doing. He didn't engage in any of those behaviors. And yet there was something about him that drew people to him even when their lifestyle was so radically different from him and from his lifestyle. I think about that idea of being salt and that salt makes us thirsty. And that's what Jesus was. He was salty. He made people thirsty. When they were around him, they wanted to be around him more. And to me, when I think about holiness for us, that's the picture. It's not a a pharisaical, legalistic, here's my list of rules. It's being, it's saltiness. When people are around us, they want to be around him. When people are around us, they're thirsty for him. 
Obviously, there's a behavioral component to that, but it's not the primary. The primary is the heart, the motivation, the desire. Yes, we've been set apart from, and again, that is important. It's more important, I think, to recognize what we've been set apart for, for him and for him alone. I want to take a few minutes and pray. Bo's going to come up and he's going to play. He's going to close us with a song. So I'm going to pray and then he's going to play. And as he plays, these are the things I want you thinking about. And then we're just, I'm not going to come back up uh, when Bo is done. That'll just be the end of our service. I want you thinking about this idea of holiness. Some of it, I, I want you to acknowledge who you are in Jesus. There's some things that are already true about us because God has said them to be so. So you, you are holy because you're connected to Jesus, because you're in Christ and he is holy. So the things that are true of him are true of you and are true of me. And so I want you to receive that. You're holy. You don't have to work and strive and try to obtain or attain that. It's a true statement. And we're called very explicitly to be holy. In a sense, it's Jesus saying, be who you are. When you hear that word, be holy, I don't want you to hear sin less. Absolutely. But don't let that be the focus. Don't just focus on what you're set apart from, the world, sin. Focus more on what you're set apart for. And that's this relationship of intimacy with Jesus. You're set apart for oneness with him. And as that begins to capture your heart, you'll start caring a whole lot less about where the boundary lines are. And you'll find yourself not even approaching them. Not because they're neon flashing lights that are warning you because your eyes are fixed on Jesus and your question is no longer how far can I stray and still be on the team it's how close can I get before I see you face to face second thing I want you thinking about what is God doing in your life right now? Do you know? I can give you the general answer. He's working to make you more like Jesus. That's what he's always doing. I don't believe he causes all of our circumstances, but I absolutely believe he works through all of them. He doesn't waste anything. So he wants to use all your circumstances, ones that you're thoroughly enjoying and ones that are thoroughly frustrating. It doesn't mean that you can't pray for your circumstances to change. We pray for those kind of things all the time, and it's good and right and as it should be. But in the midst of those circumstances, you don't want to waste them. You don't want to, uh, if you're going to experience the pain, you might as well get something out of it. 
And so the question for, for, that I would encourage you to ask, the Lord, God, what are you doing in me right now? How are you trying to make me more like Jesus? I would say particularly focus on the areas maybe of frustration in your life, the circumstances that are difficult, the ones that you're asking God to change. God, how are you wanting to use these to make me more like Jesus? How are you wanting to use these circumstances to make me holy? He's going to do that work. It's just more enjoyable for us if we're cooperating versus resisting. You can think about the difference between a, a potter on a, with some clay on a potter's wheel that he can mold with his hands and a sculptor who's got a block of marble and he's having to use a hammer and a chisel. They're both creating something. It's just it's a lot easier to shape the pottery. You want to be pottery, you don't want to be a block of marble. God, how are you wanting to use these circumstances to make me more like Jesus? Some of you, you never even consider that question. Don't hear that as condemnation. It's just reality. You never even ask. You're kind of just kind of fat and happy and saying, I'm just, I'm okay. Not breaking any of the big ten. I'm, I'm all right. Hear this call to holiness. Begin to ask, Lord, if that's not a desire that you have, then pray. God, I, des- I, I pray that you would stir up within me a desire to be holy, to become more like Jesus. Would you increase my thirst for you? Would you capture my heart again? Those may be some things that you need to be praying. So these three things, I'm going to say a prayer, and then Bo's going to lead us in worship. And as he does, you pick one of those three to grab onto. One. You don't really have a desire for holiness. You're just kind of fine. You're just kind of bumping along through life. God, increase my desire. God, would you do that in us? Would you stir a hunger and a thirst for us? For holiness, which is a hunger and a thirst for you because you are holy. For some of you, you're you're struggling in life and you're not sure exactly where God is at work. Ask this question, God, how do you want to use these circumstances to make me more like Jesus? And I pray that, God. For everyone listening, particularly for those who are in circumstances that are frustrating and difficult, would you be really clear to them what it looks like to cooperate with you? Would you show them the areas in their own heart that you're attempting to work on? There may be some things that you're wanting to take away, some things that you want to add. Would you show them? And again, God, I pray that each one of those hearts would be like clay in your hand, not like a block of marble. They would be easily molded and shaped by you. And God, I also want to pray for people who've been burned by the whole idea of holiness. People who have gotten kind of smacked around or beaten down by the rules. God, I pray that you would set them free. They would know what it is to be free in you, Jesus. To live a life of holiness that's rooted in relationship and love. That's not rooted in performance and legalism. 
God, I pray that we would live lives marked by holiness and marked by a holiness that causes others to hunger and thirst for you, that draws people to you, not that makes them think, wow, that guy's got great discipline or that woman is super righteous, but makes them say, I want what they have. This ability to fully embrace and enjoy life and yet to do so without sinning. God, would you mark us as holy people in Jesus' name. Amen.